Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, a podcast about the everyday struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell. And I'm Timothy Plain. Each week we discuss a different filmmaking topic or topics and give you our point of view on them, not as experts, but just as two filmmakers trying to figure out how to make movies for ourselves. So tell, tell us what you're struggling with this week. Um, what am I struggling with? I don't know. I got, uh, finishing up the post work on The Rage right now, so color is done. I haven't looked at it on my projector yet, but, um, I watched it at the colorist place on Saturday, and I have it on my computer now, ready to be merged back into the project. You know, he doesn't have the full version of Da Vinci, so he can't do, um, certain things. Like, he can't do warp stabilizer moves, so there's a couple warp stabilizers that I'm gonna do on my end. But it's, like, pretty much visually, it's all done. And then um, I'm going to drop it off at the sound guy's house today. So once I get it to him, then he's going to do sound design and the music's being worked on as we speak. So we're thinking like by the end of December, this whole thing will be completely wrapped up now that color's (laughs) done. You know, sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. I just remember a conversation with you in your car. What was that like? It must have been last year. Remember, we were going to Palo Alto to record that TV show. Oh, yeah. And you were asking me, like, do you think it's okay if I do another short film? And I was like, yeah, if you think it's only going to take like a month or two and it doesn't get in the way of what you're really trying to do, which is your feature. And you're like, no, 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 I think we, I can get it done in like a month or two. Yeah. And here right. we are, right. December, like a year later. Well, I thought I was going to beat brother. I thought I was going to, you know, kind of be done <laughs> and ready to go and then, you know, would come out before brother came out. But then brother got that <laughs> right. uh, April premiere because I thought brother was going to happen in June. And then, you know, I, it's just life happened. You know, I worked on that movie, which took a lot of time. And that was kind of like right when I should have been doing the post on it. And then instead of doing the post on that, I went and worked on a movie. And then, um, right. And then, and then it was like, oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to edit it. Let's find an editor that take months and months. And then once you finally get the editor on, then that takes months and months. And it just, you know, everything (laughs) takes months and months for some reason when you have no money. You know, right. Sometimes you can only sum it up with one word life. <laughs> yeah, life. I do that all the time. Just like, man, life. Right, right. Yeah, so that, that's been good, though. It's been, it was great to come back from vacation and just, um, just jump right on it and tackle that, you know, and, and make that happen right away. But yeah, so that's, that's been good. And then I've also been working on, um, the alternate and writing and, uh, you know, taking meetings and talking to people and just trying to, uh, to figure things out. I, I mean, I don't know. I think like there's this whole thing that I've kind of decided where it's like, oh, okay, I don't want to fundraise during the holiday season just because I feel like that's not the best time to hit people up for money just because people are not going to be in the right mindsets. And I was sort of thinking, oh, I'll just do some anyways. But I just kind of feel like I just need to wait, you know, like just wait, just chill, you know. Um, they'll, you know, it's not like anyone's going away. Like, I'll just wait until, like, you know, end of January, mid January, and then I'll start talking to people about it again. Well, is your fear that they what will say no now and you won't have another chance to do it later? Yeah, maybe. Exactly. Or, you know, like, I don't know, you want to approach people at the right time where they're going to be most likely to say yes. And I think, like, Right now is not the time that anyone's most likely to say yes to me, you know? Because... Maybe they will, though. People might have, like, a generous spirit. Because oh, because of the, of the holiday season. season. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my buddy uh, who made his movie, like, a long time ago, I was asking him when he did fundraising, and he, he actually did it right. He started in Christmas time, like, around November, December, and then, um, you know, finished up in January through February, and then, and then shot in the summer, you know? Um, so... 
So yeah, maybe maybe it's not the best, worst time to start. I don't know. I just feel like it just seems like when people are busiest and even if it's not just the money thing, but if they're just busy with the holidays, it's like, you know, the ask is, it just seems like the wrong time to put the ask in, you know? Well, I don't know. And I, and I would encourage you not to wait for the right time. Just like anything in filmmaking, there's never a right time to do anything. You just have to like go after it. Yeah. So maybe what what you can do is approach people and say, hey, can I talk to you about my movie? I'm trying to raise money. And if they say no, then they're probably, it's not the right time right now. But if they say yes, then why not take the opportunity rather than waiting two months? Oh, yeah. Like ask them if it's t- okay to, to ha- set up a meeting now. Yeah. Be yeah. like, hey, I know that it's a busy season right now, but if you have time, I'd really love to talk to you about a movie that I'm shooting next year and I'm trying to raise money for. Can we get together for half an hour sometime before January? And right. if they say no, then that means that they're too busy and they don't have time for you. But if they say yes, then take advantage of it. Do it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'll... Um do that on uh monday like kind of maybe start writing my emails now and like kind of get them all ready and then um monday morning fire them all off you know just so yeah and at least get the ball rolling because if they say no then at least the word is out there and then when you come back from uh the holiday break after like christmas then you can approach them again and be hey remember uh during the holidays i asked you about this i'm still doing it can we meet now in the new year you know i'm curious to know what our audience thinks like you know would you mind being approached during the holiday season to be hit up for an investment or to talk about like some sort of financial um you know deal of some kind or do you think like oh no this is not the right time like you know, if I, if I was ever to be interested in having that conversation, it wouldn't be in the holidays. And I'd, I'd want to wait until a time where, you know, I'm not really worried about money so much or something. I don't know. You guys tell us because Timothy seems <laughs> to think that it doesn't matter or might not matter. And I, I'm, I'm a little more concerned. So I would love to hear people's feedback on that. Yeah. Hit us up. Yeah. So last time we talked, uh, I had was just about to direct this milk project. I finished directing that. I'm not going to talk too much about the shoot because we want to talk about unions. And I think the shoot pertains more to that topic than it does anything else. But my biggest pain, the biggest struggle that I had over the last week was editing. Um, right after we shot, I had, I'm editing the piece. So I had to put together an assembly edit on Friday and it was painful to like go back <laughs> through the footage and see all the mistakes that I made while I was shooting. Cause I was so frenzied on the day of the shoot. I felt like I couldn't make any smart decisions. So I really just relied on all the prep that I did. And so I really, I left that shoot just wondering, do we even have what we need? Like, is this going to work? So then when I sat down and started editing and I saw some of the mistakes that I'd made in like full clarity, I was pretty upset with myself. Well, give me some examples of like some of the mistakes you think you made on this. One that pops to mind right now is um, we started with the wide shot and I only had time for probably about four or five takes of the wide shot before we had to move on. But my goal was to like spend a long time on that and really get everything right. So that way we could just kind of redo all the actions and all the performance and all the close ups. But since I didn't have time, I just got the wide shot just kind of sketched out and then moved on. And I thought, uh, most of it's going to play in close-ups anyway, so I'll just figure it out once we get to the close-ups. So one of the performances I did with the actor was really work on like the pre-dialogue um, 
like actions and one of it was one of those was him sipping some water because he was nervous and I didn't do that in the wide shot so there's no way for me to cut between the close-up and the wide shot at that moment because I didn't Mm. have that action so Mm. it was a lot of continuity stuff where I was so messy with my continuity and um, and the performances that I didn't create enough opportunities for me to edit. Mm, that's yeah, that's that sucks. It's been a while since I've just done like traditional coverage like this, so I feel like part of it is because I'm just I forgot about the basic skills that like need to happen when you're doing coverage. So it's like. I did wide shot, close up, close up, close up on each one of my characters, and I should have stuck with my instinct, which is to really figure it out in the wide shot, spend a little extra time on it. And then when you get to the close-ups, you just kind of ex- execute the close-up like you performed in the wide shot. It's kind of like you tell, tell the actors, remember everything you just did, because we're going to do all, all that stuff in the close-up. How many casts did you have in the scene? We had three uh, principal actors and then six extras in the background, and I was directing everyone. Did the extras interact with the, the principals in any way? No. Okay, that's good. Nice. Well, you know, I mean, at least it wasn't like a complete, because like what I could imagine being really difficult is if like you had like, let's say six principles in a scene or whatever. <laughs> right. and, yeah. And uh-huh. you had to like, you know, figure out all their, their work in the wide. Like that's really tough because, you know. It's really tough. You can't watch everyone at the same time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That was, that was spirit machine because I had what, four people around the table and then Edison at the same time so any wide shots that i had in that was really hard to keep track of everyone's movement so um i think i probably just went through kind of actor by actor and talked to them individually and like really figured out like who they were and what they were doing and tried to give them a very specific action so that way they weren't all doing the same thing right and um what were the other things that you thought like were mistakes you'd made while you're watching your footage that was kind of the biggest thing. The other thing is just when you're editing, there's, you know, you're looking for a piece of footage that you think is going to really help make the edit. And then when you realize, like, because I, I directed it, that you don't have that, that you didn't anticipate you need it, then you feel like it's a, it, you made a huge mistake. Right. So, you know, I had to sacrifice stuff on the day. I had like huge lists of things that I wanted to capture and I couldn't get because I had to start cutting things. And um, some of those were like, these snap zooms to like really increase the energy of it and um, snap zooms on actors faces was one thing that I decided that I needed to cut in order to just get the story in the can so Mm -hmm. I had snap zooms on other things but not the actors faces and I really wish that I had it on the actors faces oh yeah so you know it's just like it's a lot of things like it's time and money it's not not all my mistakes um, but also you know just just a factor of the project and not having enough time yeah. Not having enough resources. Like on the day, I was doing so many things that I I didn't even have time in between setups to think about what I needed to get in the next setup. Yeah, I know what you mean, man. It's a, it's a tough situation when you're stuck like that. My out on this whole thing was we shot 4K and I only need to finish in HD. So I'm able to reframe a lot of the shots. Right. Um. So... Uh, the DP shot most of our shots dirty so you can see the actor not doing the action they're supposed to do to be able to cut oh great <laughs> so fantastic I'm able to yeah I'm able to frame them out and kind of make that stuff work which you know worked in my favor because I wanted everything to be tighter than we actually shot it mm. but because we were so fast on the day I just thought you know I'll just reframe it in post because 
I don't want to spend the time like trying to get a perfect framing. I'd rather spend the time on the performance. Do you like your shots dirty like that with a little bit of the actor in the foreground or do you prefer Sometimes it, clean? it depends. On this one I wanted it to be clean um just because of how how I imagine it cutting. But yeah, the DP kept wanting everything to be dirty and I was just looking at it going, "Fine, whatever. Let's just <laughs> let's just go." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You know, it depends. It like really depends on the shot. Right. But yeah, it makes it a lot harder to keep continuity when you can see both actors in frame. And yeah. so that it makes it even more important to make sure that you have the whole scene blocked out and the actors know exactly what to do on what beat so that you can really cut between things. Because if your only way out of a cut is to cut to another person that's in that shot already, then everything needs to match. Yeah, I kind of feel like, um, you know, with dirty versus non-dirty, like I think a lot of people just think it looks better to be dirty, you know, um, which I, I agree. I mean, I think it looks nice to have things in the foreground, you know, if, and if it's an actor, that can be quite dynamic. But I think uh, what I, my favorite sh dirty shots are ones that like have a purpose, you know, where you're trying to communicate something to the audience through that. Like if it's an actor, you know, tapping his or her finger slightly out of focus or something you know and the other person's talking or, or whatever you know something i mean i don't know maybe it doesn't <laughs> always have to be something like that but i just think that yeah. always going dirty just it's like kind of takes away from you know the coolness of that shot i guess or, or those kinds of that kind of framing i don't know yeah for me um i'm always worried about things feeling like cheats and sometimes if things are too clean it feels um it feels like you're cheating. Mm. And the what I what I mean by that is that you can do a lot in edit ed, an editorial um, where you you cut together a bunch of disparate shots to tell a story. But if you do that too much, then sometimes I feel like and I feel like this I I did see the new Ghostbusters, mm. by the way. And I felt like part of the way that movie was directed was in a lot of singles, like clean singles. Mm -hmm. And then they just pieced together the scene and the edit. Mm -hmm. So it's like, let's pick the best one-liner from our series of takes, and we'll just throw that into a dialogue scene. And so it feels very disparate. It doesn't feel like a cohesive whole. So sometimes it helps to kind of lock yourself in um, with some dirty shots or even just shooting it in a wide. So it feels very deliberate rather than just kind of haphazard. You give yourself too many outs, and then you can create a scene that's only funny to you because you think it's hilarious but it really just is a bunch of disparate elements that come together right does that make sense do yeah. they make any sense i think so i mean i, I know the, the feeling where like if you have a single on a certain actor and like you can sometimes tell if they shot it in a different time or a different place than the rest of the scene you know and they try to match make it match like they were shooting it they're, they're actually talking to the same actors you know but I've definitely noticed in some movies where you can tell, like, oh, they picked that up later because <laughs> that doesn't look quite the same, you know, and, yeah. and there's no one else in the frame except that one actor, you know. So sometimes it's a little obvious. But I mean, I've, I don't really have a problem with clean shots, but I think everything has its purpose and it's all like for emotional response and for story, you know. So like sometimes the story would really benefits from having things being in singles, you know, and clean. Um, yeah. You know. I would say most of the time in commercials, we shoot things clean because we want to be able to cut to anything at any point. 
And that's, you know, it's hard to lock yourself in on a commercial edit because there's always going to be people that weren't there in the shoot that are going to ask for something different. And you, the answer is saying, oh, sorry, we can't because it doesn't cut. Um, you know, continuity wise is not really a good answer. Like they want, they just want to see something else. Like, oh, didn't you get, grab an alt of them saying this? You're like, yeah, let me see that in there. Right. And so you have to just throw that in, be able to throw that in. So commercials do have like a very distinct style. I feel like now that I've seen so many of them that you don't really see commercials shot the same way as movies for that reason. Right. So, um, you know, in the end, you were able to solve all your problems in the edit by doing 4K pushes and stuff like that. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it all came together. We cool. we spent all day yesterday editing, and we got it to a good place, and I felt a lot better after struggling with it. But man, that first assembly edit is just so rough. Yeah. I was just looking at it, going, "Is this ever gonna work?" So I was happy last night after we we wrapped editing. Like, all right, cool. It's all here. It's all gonna work. I feel it's like that's good. that's always how it is, though, right? Like the first yeah. assembly is always pretty rough, and you feel like. You know, all the mistakes you made are, are there for you to see. And you're like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, why did, how could I be so stupid <laughs> why do I not suck to so do much? this or that or whatever? But yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. Like, it's a, it's really interesting to talk to you because you're like, you know, it's a 30 second spot. Is that it? Or 60 or? It's a 60. 60. So yeah. So like you did an edit on Friday and then a Monday morning you bring it into your office and you edit all day. And then by the end of the day, you pretty much have like, you know, a, a rough final or whatever. Yeah. But exactly. imagine this experience on a feature, man, like where <laughs> it's like weeks of editing to get the assembly and then like weeks and weeks to like tweak it. You know, imagine like what that experience is like and how much pain you, the director, if you're editing and direct, directing and editing, you know, how much pain you must be going through, like, you know, sitting with your assembly for like days, you watch it come together <laughs> so shittily. Right, <laughs> right like, exactly. I got relief over the weekend. Right. But yeah, it would take months and months before, and if you even felt relief. Yeah, I never, never felt relief on Spirit Machine. You're right. Well, that's kind of why I want to have an editor for my feature, just because I don't want to have to sit with it, um, no. you know, and, and I think... Having that um, objectivity is important because, you know, I think they can do a better job putting it together and seeing what I can't see or the director can't see in that assembly process, you know, um, and and hopefully put together a better movie if you've made the right choice in your editor, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I so wish I had an editor when I was sitting there on Friday piecing together the footage for the first time. It's like, man, this sucks. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'd rather just walk into an edit room and see it kind of like already pieced together and be like, hey, this works pretty well. Oh. Rather than like making all the compromises just to like force a cut together. Like I only had one choice between a close up and a wide. And I was like, well, I guess that's the one we're going with. Right. Right. <laughs> That's why I've, I've been in that situation in, in uh, the shorts I've made too, you know, where it's like you don't have any other options. And the rage was actually like that a lot because we, we shot it in a very deliberate manner and didn't shoot coverage at all. Um, so you really only had like certain choices to go from one scene to the next, you know, and in some cases, like only one take or two takes for um, for a certain shot that was basically a kind of its own scene, you know. So we were really limited, but we, we were able to, you know, do some 4K stuff to, to kind of stitch it together. And then also, you know, we shot some other, like we shot a lot of footage for certain scenes that ended up becoming other scenes in a way. And, um, you know, it, it ended up being really, uh, really good in the end. But, uh, 
but it's it's a brutal process man it's tough yeah it really is um let's try to do uh three topics today three topics a a listener question i want to catch up about uh the robin schmidt interview and breaking in because there's questions that that i wanted to ask you and it sounds like you want to ask too that we didn't get a chance on that show and then we've been wanting to talk about unions for weeks now and we haven't so let's try to like do 10 minutes each on on each of these okay let's do it let's do it let's make it happen so Listener question from Chris Colnane the Third uh, via Facebook. He left a um, a comment on one, our post last week. It looks like, and he says, "I'm just starting out in my video film career and almost done with my audio visual certificate. I really enjoy you guys on the show and would love to know your thoughts on what to do after graduation. Keep up the good work." I I, uh, I read this when he posted it a while ago, and uh, I was like, "Oh, this is cool! I really uh, I like answering this question." And uh, but I was really curious as to what um, your full answer would be because I saw that you re- re- you know replied to him. But I want to I want to hear like what I, what is your advice for this guy? Well, my full answer would would have to be like, "What do you want to do, Chris? Like, where are you? Like, where do you live?" And what do you want to do? And then we could figure out a path because <laughs> he, he just says video film career. What do you want to have your own company? Do you want to work as a DP, as a director, as a sound guy? Like what do you, I, I don't really understand where he wants to place himself, but my general advice was find a place that you admire, that you admire the people that work there, admire the things that they do, and get yourself in there no matter what the position is so you can kind of build yourself up inside that environment. If that exists. I don't know if (laughs) if he even has something in his town. Um, If he's not in a place where there are people like shooting stuff, then he probably has to go to a place that has, has people shooting if he wants to get a position inside of a company. Or he can just start his own business, you know, right. grab some gear and start shooting things for uh, local companies and start your own like little video production service. Right. Well, just for the sake of, of this discussion, let's just assume he wants to be a director because like I think 90% of people <laughs> want to be a director even though they don't necessarily say it. And when they say video film career, I think but they... But he says, he says he's getting an audiovisual certificate. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know where he is. Like, he could be in a different uh, country where maybe that's something that they like. That's what they call it, or maybe he's at a school where that's where they call it. I mean, because that that could mean, yeah, like I want to set up like you know video and audio setups for like concert halls, you know? Yeah, or exactly. Whatever. So that's why it's like yeah, it, to understand a little bit more about what he's going for would help the answer to this question so we can only guess so right you're right let's just guess he wants to be a director let's what would say you he say wants to, to be a film director um like i i wanted to be when i came out of college and i still want to be now you know uh <laughs> what would i do differently like i thought that being a pa was the answer right like you pa and then you work your way up and then eventually you get the opportunities to be at the upper end doing producing directing whatever and that's not really true. Um, you know, PA is, is a very specific path to a very specific career, you know. So if you want to be like a production manager or an assistant director or, 
you know, even a producer, but probably more like a production manager or like a production coordinator, something like that, then like, yeah, PAing is great because you're going to be, you're going to get in with those people. You're going to be groomed in that direction and you're going to be able to choose like, yeah, do I want to be in the office and be more of a coordinator, like production manager type person? Or do I want to be like on the field and like go the AD route and like follow the, the assistant directing path, you know? So it's like, those are like the two things that like are really open for PAs. But um, what I would say is like, you know, let's imagine like you want to be a director or let's say you don't even know what you want to do. I would like be a PA, you know, get a PA job wherever you can and then don't do it very long. Cause like, like unless you want to be those things, unless you want to be a production manager or whatever, or an assistant director, I wouldn't do PAing for long at all. I would do it just long enough to meet people in the different departments. And then I would start PAing for the other departments. So I would like, you know, camera PA or camera intern or art intern or art PA or makeup PA or, or whatever, like just find the different area, the different place or grip PA. If you wanted to be grip and lighting and whatever, you know, just, you know, find the one that you want to do and, and try that or try them all. Like, you know, I think people, when you're young, you know, people expect you to try different things and, and go out there. So like, I don't think people are going to scoff at you if you're like one day you're camera interning and then you decide, oh, I don't like it. Like, well, let me art intern. They, they might scoff a little bit because, you know, like they're, they're doing whatever they're doing and they're just going to judge you just because people like to judge people. But, uh, you know, I would, I would just go out and try things, you know? Okay. So let me stop you. I'm sure this is interesting to some other people, but for Chris himself, I just, I'm on his <laughs> Facebook page. He lives in Denton, Texas. Okay. And he already has a Facebook page for Heart Shaped Box Productions, and he has a, a logo animation he's put up for it and says, I'm really excited to share with you the new logo animation and can't wait to use it on my next video production. So it sounds like he's kind of along the Purcell Productions path where he's probably like right. a free, going to be a freelance video production guy and do whatever whatever jobs he can get and right, right. who knows where his ambitions are. But how would you start out Ulrich um, be to if, if I wanted to find be like, work, be a video produced, like producing videos and getting yeah, doing what you doing what you do now. Like how did, how did you get your clients and how did you start your production company? So you right. can get like people finding you and offering you editing jobs and script supervising jobs and producing jobs and well, directing jobs. For me, it started when I interned. So I used to intern for uh, the ABC seven, like the local um, ABC affiliate. And um, I met people there who needed editing. So I actually started one of the first paid editing jobs I ever got. I was editing a reel together for a um, like a host type person or like a, a person who was like looking for on camera appearance experience. So they were like trying to like, you know, show that they've been on camera being like a consultant for financial or for tech or whatever. So like I just cut all these different TV appearances that this person had had together and um you know gave it to her and that was her reel you know so that was like my one of my first editing jobs you know how long were you there for um doing the editing for her no at abc oh just like maybe eight months um and then did you go to be real after that um oh to studio b or studio b well yeah so what happened was i was at abc7 like my final um year in college and uh you know, it was like right when the the market completely tanked in like 2009 or whatever that fall. So um, it was like the worst time ever to be looking for a job. And so like I remember when I left, they were like, oh, yeah, like if, if it wasn't for the market, we'd normally be offering you a job. But right now we can't we're like firing like three people. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, good luck. So I basically left there. And then, um, you know, that's where I kind of like. 
I didn't find Studio B until the fall after that. So basically it took me a while and I was like, that was when I was just, you know, PAing, interning, whatever. And like when I found Studio B was also when I first started PAing for like the big um, TV show, uh, Trauma, that was in the Bay Area. So like kind of both those things happened at the same time. But uh but yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I would, I would just like anyone you meet and everybody you meet, just like, you know, let them know what you're doing. And, you know, everyone needs a video. So it's pretty easy to like start like talking to people about, you know, offering them video services. And, you know, I would start small on the first couple, you know, don't ask for huge rates, but like, you know, then build yourself up. And once you have a good reel together and you've made some, some connections, hopefully the, hopefully the, the, the best thing that can happen is the clients you work with in the beginning have more work for you. And then you end up like, you know, finding a good solid client that will stay with you for a while. Um, that's really hard, you know, but, um, but I mean, I would think about it as you're coming up with everyone together. So you're going to start low in your hope that all those relationships you make at the bottom build up along with you and then in a few years from now you'll have bigger projects and people will be in places where they can offer you bigger projects so yeah rather than looking for a way into the big project from the beginning i would look at it as like a slow steady growth start small and keep growing and growing and growing and just be ready for the long haul it's going to take a while it's not going to happen overnight i don't know but here's my other thing i want to say and this is probably <laughs> okay, not yeah. what he wants to hear but um you know like a lot of people like anyone can start a video production company and anyone can get a snazzy logo together and a snazzy animation and, you know, come up with a cool name and all that stuff. <clears throat> but I think if you really want to, uh, to grow and you really want to get to a higher level and if you're starting with nothing, especially like, I think it's probably better to spend some time in a big company learning and apprenticing and uh, working under some people because, you know, if you're doing it on your own, you, it's it's really easy to develop issues and and problems and and things that are going to hold you back later if you're if you're teaching yourself, you know, and um you know especially if you have ambitions of growing to like a higher level like you say you like like if you want to work on the level that Timothy works at or if you want to you know one day direct a big budget movie or something I think like getting used to the hierarchy of uh, video production and film is really important and I know a lot of people who never never really did that and i feel like maybe it's holding some people back you know because you're then you're only like kind of used to your world and your way of working and then when like you're put put into a crew of like 10 20 professionals who do this on kind of more of a union type level or like if it's non-union but they work in the union manner you you might not know you might be like lost in that you know and i think it might be harder so dude that's uh, smart i mean you don't know what you don't know Right, exactly. And I, I remember when I, when I went to the Studio B internship uh, interview, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I knew everything. I thought I was like totally a video production right. person and like overqualified for the internship, but like happy to have it anyways. And then like, you know, you get into the company and this was like a small company of like four or five people. And like suddenly like you learn that you your, your skills don't mean jack. Like you don't have any skills. Like you barely even know what a set looks like. <laughs> And then, and then you realize that you're on the smallest, smallest end of the scale. There's like companies that are like 10 times bigger that you never even work with. And then you just start to learn and you grow and you learn. And, um, I just think that it's better to, to, to start that early. And especially when you're like the right age to be like an apprentice and an intern, I think it's even better. I mean, you know, there are 30 year old, 40 year old apprentices and interns and you can do that. And I might end up doing that at some point again, you know, for something else, but 
I just think when you're young, that's like the best time to do that stuff and, and start mm-hmm. there, you know? Try um, to learn from the best people you can be around. And if you can't be around those people, then the second best and the third best, just anyone who knows more than you is just, is going to be valuable to be around. Yeah. It really is. And yeah. like to that point, um, unless you have anything else to say about this, I think probably the next logical topic is unions because I feel like there is like a huge um, difference between union work and non-union work and people who work at the non-union level that have never been on a union set, I think would be kind of surprised about like how different they run. And I don't know like what the jump is between like how you jump from non-union to union. And if you can even in in like a a city like San Francisco. I really want to tell one more story, but I guess we'll just go on to this. Well, no, go ahead. So the story I wanted to tell was about um, a friend of mine that I won't name, but he had his own production company and, um, you know, he was growing and getting bigger and had a snazzy reel and like he had, you know, called it like a production company, but he's really just one guy, you know, maybe like a loose partnership with another person, but it was like either one or two guys who, who ran this company. And I think there's like hundreds of these companies all over and like probably hundreds of them in San Francisco alone. You know, these like one or two person production companies, you oh, know, yeah, there's tons of them. And I mean, Brussel Productions is probably like labeled in there, but I don't really want to be thought of that kind of place. I want to be thought of more as a, of a free as a freelancer, you know, and I just operate as Brussel Productions. But I'm not like I'm not trying to be a company, at least right, right. now. You You're know? not incorporated or anything. Right, right. But um, so a friend of mine, so he had this company and then he went to meet up with another really like a pretty big, well-known company is like one of the ones that you'd emailed me earlier this year. And I don't want to call them out or anything, but um, he met with somebody over there and they sat down and they had a meeting and uh, the person basically like ripped into my friend, according to him, I know he's an exaggerator, so maybe it wasn't so bad, <laughs> but he was basically yeah. saying that they were saying that he's the, he's the problem with production right now is that there's these young companies coming in underbidding everything driving the prices lower not having high quality like like getting high quality work for no money and then like kind of making it so all the bigger companies can't get the the rates that they used to get and that like all these little up-and-coming companies are like driving the prices down on the market and i think it's definitely true there's a lot of people out there like you you can find somebody who's gonna say like oh edit shoot and direct your commercial with all equipment and everything for five hundred dollars like you could find that like right now if you wanted to and i mean it probably wouldn't be very good maybe it would probably wouldn't but um you know i think that kind of thing is making it harder for freelance professionals to get work done and so that's why i'm like a little hesitant about the whole starting your own production company thing is because you know, there are there are a ton of production companies like, you know, maybe there's room for one in your market where you are in Texas, you know, but like there's probably a better, bigger one that you could maybe work with and maybe become a part of or at least learn from first. And then if you decide later after you've worked for this person, these people that, OK, I am ready to start my own production company. Maybe that's a better way to go. Like, but I just think going off as a freelancer without having any kind of other you know, guidance or, or interning or apprenticeship or mentorship is, is maybe not the best route to go. And then you're going to like kind of maybe alienate yourself from the rest of the community, you know, if you're doing it too early without any, enough experience, you know? So I don't know. That's what happened in San Francisco is that people went to the Academy of Art. They got a film degree in motion pictures and television. They graduated. They bought cameras and some gear. And then they started a production company. And this market is now flooded with production companies like this. These are non-union production companies. So people are allowed to work like multiple jobs, like um, 
12, 14 hour days for the same price as like an eight hour day. Right. Uh, all, yeah, all rates are negotiable. So they can get away with doing things for a lot cheaper. My optimism in all this, though, is that, yeah, in this t- right now in this time period, we are taking money away from more established companies and like really talented and good companies. But in the long run, I'm hoping that clients experimenting with these smaller non-union shops that for a very cheap of a cheap amount of money will eventually see the value in spending more money to get like better quality work and then right. it won't last. But I, I could be wrong. Maybe this is the future and this is just what it's going to be going to mean that what what these companies are doing though is allowing clients to create more content because they want more and they can't they can't afford to spend a million dollars every time they need something so what they've done is they've turned to these smaller production companies to spend like 25 50 or a hundred thousand dollars on these little videos that are to them disposable that they can whether it turns out good or not it doesn't matter to them they can throw it up on the internet and as long as it gets views their name is still out there so for a lot of clients they don't even care about the quality they just want it to be done right yeah it's interesting i i just did a job a couple like right before i left for vacation where we were coming in to reshoot something that they, somebody else had done already could like they're like well we hired this person they said they had a lot more experience than they actually did and it ended up not working so well and we watched the video and it was like very embarrassing um and then we came in and i was working for another company like for it was actually for studio b and uh and you know we did we, we did it right you know we, we got it done but i mean you know that's what happens when you go with somebody off Craigslist or, you know, who doesn't really have a lot of experience, who, who may, may have a nice looking website, may have a nice looking reel, but you don't even know if they even shot that reel. Like some, I've heard of people oh, yeah. taking footage from other people's work and then saying that that's theirs and putting it on their reel, you know? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, people do all kinds of crazy shit. So I would just say avoid all that and just, uh, <laughs> you know, if you get a good reel together, you want to go out on your own, that's fine. But I don't know, maybe it's better if you just... Uh, yeah, partner with some other people. Like I, I want to work for other companies. I want to like be a freelancer for other companies. I'm not really ready or interested at the time to start my own company right now. Like I'd rather work with lots of different other people. You know, that's yeah, what I'm we, interested in. We've said it before. Like if you look at the history of film and how people learned the craft of filmmaking, they learn through apprenticeship. Right. I think it's a really hard craft to learn on your own and to do like to learn through books, or even just by spending money and doing it i think you really if you put yourself in a place where you're working with people that can do it better than you you're just gonna learn so much yeah so like on one hand i'm i am the person taking money away from bigger production companies because i'm willing to do a cheap production like i just did on this milk thing for next to nothing um but at the same time i'm doing it within the walls of my agency so i have like i have jeff goodby like uh giving me notes on my on the script that I'm about to shoot or giving me notes on my edit. Well, so you're it's still like a, doing it's, it for a different thing. It's not the yeah, same. So it's not quite the same, but yeah. So like the set that I was just on uh, the shoot that I just did, I had to be the director the first AD and the second AD, like all wrapped in one. And that would have never happened on a union shoot. Like you just can't overlap jobs like right. that. So like for people who don't know like what a union is, it's like it's, there's certain rules that a union puts into place that if you work with union people, then you have to follow those rules. So one of those rules, and it's just like a construction site, is like certain people's jobs are defined, you know, the parameters of those jobs are very strict. So 
the you can't bleed from one job into the next and you have to be paid um, based on an eight hour day and then any time past eight hours is considered overtime right. and you have to break for lunches like at six every six hours and there's all these rules that you have to follow where in the non-union world you don't have to worry about any of that stuff it's all negotiable people can do whatever they want as long right. as you um, abide by you know the regular state law uh, labor laws right so, but I mean I, I structure all my jobs all my jobs are non-union but I structure them on the not the union standards so yeah like, you most know, people do yeah. Yeah. Most people use the union as union standards as like the general standard. So even on my non-union shoot, we still broke at six hours because that's just, it's just a fair way to treat people. Right. You know, and the, if you treat people bad, they're not going to want to work with you again. Especially but, if you're working on no budget, like you have to ab- abide <laughs> right. by those rules because that's what people are used to. And if you're getting, getting, working with good people, like, you know, most likely they're, they're either been on union shoots or they're aspiring to be union. So like they know the rules, like it's, it's all these, that kind of goes into it a lot. So, yeah. yeah. So I think most people are probably familiar with the acting union, the SAG and, the and Screen AFTRA, Actors Guild. right? Yeah, SAG and AFTRA, but there's also unions for directors, there's unions for cinematographers and like what are what are the unions that like crew member like grips and gaffers and everyone who what unions do they fall under? Do you know all the different like, unions? I mean, I know there's like Local 16. Is that the one that kind of encompasses a lot of these positions? Like, you know, camera, uh, grip, um, like they all kind of, I think they all kind of have their, their own local union chapter that they kind of are managed under. I know there are different unions on a higher level. Like there's like the ACE and the BSC. Those are like the two different unions for camera operate or ca- camera department. Well, I'm not even yeah familiar with all all those because I I only deal with SAG on on my side of things right but if you're a production company you'd have to deal with all the different unions I don't and you'd have to sign agreements with them probably yeah you want to work with union people you normally what you do is you sign agreements with those unions and say I'm only going to use union people on my set so then you're not allowed to use non-union people so like one of the big disparities between production companies on my end is um, union versus non-union shops means if a shop has signed up to work with a union, that means they can only produce a job at a certain starting at a certain price because you have union regulations dictating, uh, you know, the the production around that job. But right. a non-union shop can beat the number up down to like the twenty five thousand or thirty thousand dollars that a lot of clients are asking for nowadays. So. Right. That's like the challenge is like the union shops are missing out on business because they can't get that cheap because they're working under union rules. So that's one thing to think about it. Like if you are a production company and you're thinking about signing up with the unions is that you, you can't go back like once you're once you're signed up with them but i guess if you're at that that stage you probably are comfortable with that right yeah i mean i i don't i don't really like know <laughs> when a production company would want to go union or not i mean i i know that a lot of the work and most of the work um that i've done in the bay area it's all non-union like all the studio b jobs are all non-union and and they they range from you know like 20,000 to like you know 200,000 or more or whatever but they still stay you know non-union and maybe you have to hire a union um crew for certain things at certain times like the the way i deal with it the most actually is like these conference halls these convention halls in san francisco they're all controlled by the unions so if you're shooting like 
at Moscone Center or whatever, you're they're technically supposed to have a union camera operators for that uh, stuff. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but like I've shot in there before as non-union, and you can kind of get away with it. But like they they kind of harass you a little bit. Like they're like they always ask you like, oh, what union are you with, or who are you with? Are you with the union? Blah blah blah. Like, and if you're not, then they sometimes make you hire a union operator to be a li- liaison with the non-union operator. So like you can hire a non-union person, but you have to also hire a union person to be there with them what during the shoot. And um I think that oftentimes make makes people just hire union guys, but like a lot of times like you know you don't necessarily trust the union guys cuz they're just going to assign you a person and you don't know what their qual- how good they are, you know, and like then you sort of like want to look for a union person that you trust that you can hire. You know, so it kind of becomes tricky. But um you know, I, I don't. I don't exactly like know when you have to go union for a commercial. I kind of have an idea of when you have to do it for a movie. It's like if you're going over a certain budget and you have like um, like a certain amount of days. I don't exactly know all the rules. There's tons of rules to it all, but um, I know there's a lot of movies I've I've uh, heard about people being on. That will flip. So, like, they'll be non-union, and then halfway through, they'll turn union for this reason or that reason. Oh, really? And, and if that well, happens... Well, sometimes the unions will come and they'll bully a production. Like, if they know a production's in town that's a non-union production, they can come and boycott that production and try to unionize it. It, it starts with SAG, I think, a lot of times. Because, like, yeah, you know, all so. the... Because you can't really get actors unless, you know, they're, they're SAG actors. And, I mean... You you can get SAG actors on a non-union shoot, like that's not a problem. But I know that if the shoot starts to get to a certain budget level or a certain sphere or whatever, and you have right. like this amount then of it actors, hits the union involved. map, and they're like, "Well, why aren't they working union if they're that budget?" Right, exactly. And then sometimes you have to flip. I mean, I think we should ask. If I have a producer, like a film producer, on at some point who can talk about this a little, <laughs> a little bit more detail. Um, yeah. But I I just remember being a PA and kind of hoping things would flip because. If it did, then you you get a different type of days um, on it, and then you can use those union days to to get um, to your uh, next level of being a, like I think you be- become a second second or whatever, and then and then that's like how you get into the union. Like you need a certain amount of days on union shoots, and then um, you need like some recommendation letters or whatever. And then I think you know once you have your 500 400 days or whatever it is then you can you you can turn union you know and that's what everybody wants to do because then once you get to union you can work on the union jobs and the bigger movies and you get a better rate and it's like the next step in your career you know um but at this point are you even thinking about joining the union or is that not even on your radar i was thinking about it for camera operating because Uh like you you can go down to i think it's local 16 and um you know you introduce yourself like you know you can show them your reel or your resume and say hey this is the kind of work i've done i'm I'm a camera operator i want to be a camera operator or whatever and then they sign you up and then you can get like a your union card but you're not like actually a card you're not a card holding member but it's like you're permitted or something um they'll like give you like a work permit to like do union work or overflow work or something like that if they have like too much work in town and then usually you'll get car- called just to do like staging work you know like the the bitch work basically you know and where you don't get paid like you get paid like i think 35 an hour or something like that and then you know it's all like you said like based on eight hours and then you get overtime or, or whatnot you know but um but 
you just have to take every call you get, you know? And like, if it's a, a staging call or like, you know, some bullshit, you know, like dock loading call or whatever, you have to take it. And then like, once you take en- enough of those and they'll trust you and then they maybe they'll, they'll throw you a camera operating gig. And then if you do a good job, they'll, they'll trust you and they'll give you more. And then, but it's all about like not saying no. Right. Like if you say, if you turn down jobs because like you don't want to, or you got other things going on, they're just going to tell you to go to hell. You know, <laughs> So it's really hard. Like it's, it's all like, you know, like loyalty and you know, who you know, and if they trust you and putting in your time, paying your dues, you know? So it, it would be kind of limiting. Like if I started to go down that path, like I would probably have to do a lot um, less of the other things I do and kind of like say no to a lot of the other things in my life that I do just to, you know, like make the union happy, you know? Um, and then, and then what? And then you get to a certain level and then you're, you're shooting on, um, you know, A's games and Giants games, you know, or you're, <laughs> or you're like, you know, well, in San Francisco. Yeah. Or like when outside lands happens, you're, you know, the big concert that happens in the city once a year, then you go, you, you get to operate one of the cameras on that. Or, you know, if someone comes to town or like, you know, Comic Con's in town and they have camera operators like shooting the panels here, you get to shoot the, on that. So it's like, that's sort of the kind of work that, that, that would open up. Like it's, it's not, it's not like, oh, I would get a chance not to glamorous. I'm not going to operate, get, you know, operate on the union commercial that comes to town or, or whatever, or the union movie that comes down and, oh, I'm not suddenly going to be an operator on that. I mean, maybe after like 20 years, I would potentially get to that structure. But I think mostly like those people, they will just come with their DPs from, from wherever they come from. If they're coming out of New York, they're probably going to bring a camera operator with them. Or if they're coming out of LA, they'll definitely bring a camera operator with them, you know? So I just don't know. I don't really see the, the, the big picture upside to it besides like having steady work as a camera operator, you know, but well, I, it probably, it depends on where you are, right? San Francisco is a different town than right. LA. I'm sure in LA, it benefits you so much more to be oh. in, a, in a union, right? Well, yeah, if there's you, a huge right. dispar- disparity between union work and non-union work in LA and everyone in LA wants to be on the union side of things. Right. So it, it definitely is going to change the game if you can get on the union side. If I was in LA or New York, I would definitely, I would join the editing union probably or try to because that's all the work that's out there is all, like you said, all union work. And, um, I think you have to like, I was talking to somebody who just joined the editing union and they were like kind of at my level, like independent filmmaker had kind of gotten out of college a couple of years ago or whatever. And they had worked as an assistant editor on a documentary for like, you know, six months or something and now it's kind of like their way in because they got enough days by doing the assistant editing on the dock and then they were able to get their card and become an editor and then you know get jobs and you know probably mostly doing reality tv you know i think that's what you do a lot of in la you know (laughs) lots of reality shows that need editors um but but yeah i mean i think in new york same thing like i think if i was in new york or la i'd probably definitely go for either the camera union or the or the editing union but I'd probably have to choose like those, those, those markets are big enough where you, you'd be more specialized. Like in this, this small market, you know, there's not really enough work to really be that specialized. So that's why I do editing and shooting and producing and everything, you know, but if I was over there, I'd probably pick one and just do that, you know, and and I'd probably pick editing most likely. Cause I think editing, there's always room for editors, you know, and one last thing about unions, um, um the, benefits besides all the the regulations around like hours and 
and wages and all that is also they offer pension plans and what like do they have like health care and it's kind of like with the company there's um, benefits that come along with it right so you pay into the union and part of your union dues are they go back to like these great benefits that help people out so right there's a lot of upsides to being in a union um, but it might also depending on which city you live in hamper you because you might not have as many opportunities. Right. I think the union I'd want to be in mostly would be the DGA. I mean, yeah. they, they also govern assistant directors too and like production coordinators and stuff and, and some other positions. But, um, you know, they're, they're like the, they're, they're for directors, right? So like if you get yeah. in to the DGA, then I think your opportunities as a director will grow exponentially. And I know that like, I don't exactly know how it works for if like if you directed an independent film and it turns union and like you're suddenly on a union job, like do you automatically get into the DGA? Like I don't know if that's how it works. I think you have to like meet some sort of criteria or whatever. Um, but I kind of feel like if people want you to uh, to be working and people want to hire you to direct, then you know the union's glad to take you because they want they want that they want that work they want that money you know and. Uh, and I think they want all directors in the union, right? Like, just like they want all writers in the union. They don't want non-union writers and non-union directors taking big jobs away from union people. So, you know, I think it just like, once you get to that level on the, on the creative side, like on the filmmaking side, um, that, that stuff will be easy, you know, but like as a, as a nobody just trying to come up, I think, you know, you got to worry about the unions when they're ready to have you. I don't think you worry about the unions first. I think you just go out and do your stuff. And then you worry about the unions when they're ready to take you. Cause yeah. like, there's all these rules. It takes a while rules. to get to that level. Yeah. There's all the rules, all, all the things you do to get in the union. But, but I think the bottom line is, is when you're, when you're getting the, the offer to direct a movie, um, then they're going to, they're just going to sign you up, you know, cause why wouldn't they? Right. Yeah. But um, one warning about the union, I don't know too much about this, but I was talking to a filmmaker that I work with that he did a hundred thousand uh, dollar feature film. And one of the, I think his first AD convinced him to go union on one aspect of it. And after his uh, film got distribution, the union came back to him for um, payments on stuff. Mm. So it, it, we all expect it on SAG, right? That there's residuals for SAG actors, but right. th- it also applies to certain crew members or key positions. So I don't know too much about it, but just, you know, be aware if you're going to sign any union agreement for people on your crew, just like double check that on the back end that you're not, you're not having to pay people extra money. Okay. So really quick on breaking in. Okay. 10 minutes, 10 minutes on this. Okay. So we talked to Robin Schmidt last week about his podcast breaking in and his, his thoughts on like how he's going to break into Hollywood. Right. And, um, I feel like, you know, just, I think I got kind of defensive with him a little bit because I feel like we'd started this podcast talking about breaking in and and kind of the myths about breaking in. I think we were trying to explain to Robin, like try not to think about it as like this one big step that like you step in and you're, you're in like you're are he's already in, I feel right. And like, I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit about that again, because I just want to remind everybody that there is no breaking in. Like you're just either in or you're out and in just means that you're doing stuff. (laughs) Right. Well, it's (laughs) interesting. Yeah. Cause there's all different kinds of levels, you know, like 
you know, for me and you and for Robin too, um, you know, all our income comes from video production or filmmaking one way or another, you know? Yeah. I mean, mostly video production, but I mean, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, want to be doing video production and filmmaking and stuff and, and they have, you know, jobs still like they, they do, you know, they're working as a, at a restaurant or they work a day job doing this or they do a day job doing that or, or whatever, tech or you know? finance or banking. To me, yeah. When I, when I was like only doing video production and that was the whole way I was providing for myself, I kind of felt like I had made it in a way. Like I made it. I'm a video production professional. This is what I do for my money. You know, I don't do anything else. So I was like, so that it's, I think it's just all relative. Like, you know, what, what does it even mean to make it? And you look at Robin and it's like, yeah, he's directing. I, I think he's almost exclusively directing now at this point, you know? Yeah. The last podcast I heard, he said that he just signed a deal with the production company in Holland, that he's a full-time right. director there now. Right. Exactly. So it's sort of like, well, dude, you're directing commercials full-time. Like <clears throat> how much more made it do you want? You know, like I think he has this like romantic idea and he says it's not, I listened to three episodes of the, or four episodes of their podcast on Friday. It's a really mm-hmm. great pro- podcast, but I think he, he claims that he's not into the romantic side of it that he wants it just to do the work and do do the and be in that space and do the work and and get to that level but i think he is into the romanticism of it too just just like simon is his his is you know his partner mm-hmm. and simon admits that he's more into the romantic idea of moving to la and moving to hollywood and making it or whatever you know but i think they're both into that kind of romantic idea of uh making it happen in in, in hollywood and being a being getting to that level and i think they're they're I don't think Robin really does much on camera work, but I know Simon is an actor, you know, and a writer. So I think for him, it's definitely that kind of like that sort of thing. Um, but I just don't know if it exists, man. I just like what we've been talking about. And that's what like, it the- does. I mean, it does exist. We hear stories about it. And I think it's this dream that we all have of, of like <laughs> right. winning Sundance and, or having the online video, uh, the Fede Alvarez story where all of a sudden, like, but you Sam still Raimi have to is- work. Like, yeah, I'm sure but if I- we talk to Fede Alvarez, he's not going to say like, Oh, he's not going to feel like he made it. Like he's I got think two- he's still, I think he's still striving for something else too. And, and he's I'm still sure grinding. he's, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure he's like, Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here, but I really want to be here, and I'm I haven't made I haven't broken in until I'm working at Sony Pictures or Paramount or you know right. I think there's always like a new mountain for you to climb. So I feel like the break in is really just doing it. Like if right. you're able to make movies or shoot stuff, and whether or not you even make money doing it, just you're able to do it. I feel like that's the break in. Yeah, and then beyond that, there's like different levels, and you can you can reach for higher and higher goals. But I think to imagine that you're just gonna like there's this one step that you take, and all of a sudden you're past this barrier, I just don't think that exists for anybody. Right. Well, for me, it's more like you know if I can do it without going into bone bone crunching debt, like that that is what <laughs> it means to make it for me. If like if someone else is paying for my work, whether or not. I'm getting paid anything or, or very much like that's doesn't matter. But if someone's footing the bill for my films, like I think to me, that's when I would feel like I have made it, you know, and, and he just told us that he got funded for a short last year and that he's right. aligned for funding on his features looking good. It's like, well, what the f- freaking frack, man? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're there, you're doing it. You've, you've made it, man. You're making it happen. But right. uh, at a certain point, you have to always just take a step back from where you are and just appreciate the things that you do have and try not to feel. Because I think the danger is that you start to feel like you're a failure because you haven't achieved this level of success that 
you've either always dreamed about or you feel like is the only way to feel satisfied with the success that you have. Yeah. So I feel like if I can have like this time next year, if I um, have a line to like shooting the alternate, like let's say like I've got like, you know, a quarter or a half of my budget raised in a year and like we're looking to shoot next the, the spring 2018, I'd feel like that's a pretty amazing success. If I can be lucky enough to actually have shot in the fall next year and like be wrapped at this point. Uh, in a year, like that would be like, you know, a miracle, basically, you know, but I mean, I, hopefully I can get to the either of those places, you know, but I feel like even if I do that, even, you know, I'm going to shoot the movie, it depends on when I'm going to shoot it. But like, when I shoot the movie, I should say, uh, I don't even know if I'll feel like I've made it. I feel like I've just gotten to the next, like I finally made my first feature, you know, like that's amazing. But like now what's the next one? I got to get the next movie made, you know, I've got to get an agent. I've got to get distribution. Like there's like always new levels. So I feel like making it is all, it's all relative, right. man. Well, we'll cut to a year from now and Robin will be in Hollywood inside some studio with his middle finger out and telling us to fuck off. So right. we'll, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> he might be right. And we're but, wrong. Then, but then he'll be like, you know, a writer's <laughs> intern or a writer's assistant. And he'll be like, you know, trying to get the, the, the seat as a, as a junior writer, or he'll be a junior writer and he'll be like trying to get his show, uh, you know, through so he can be the showrunner or whatever, you know, like he'll always be struggling for making he'll it. He'll be like, grinding on some like lame show that nobody watches. And he'll be like, ah, oh, man, I really want to be doing Westworld, but you know, he doesn't have right. that opportunity and, or I really want to be doing my own series. There's always going to be some struggle. I just, I feel like there's always a struggle. I don't right. Know. I just think of the Thornton brothers, you know, and like right. how like they they've gotten multiple paid jobs as writers, you know, and like I think they even sold a script or they got a script optioned or something. And like, you know, we had them on the show and they like they didn't get funding for their for their first feature on Kickstarter. And like, I don't know what they're doing right now, but it's like, you know, you look at those guys and it's like, you know, they're, they're like three or four steps above Robin and and I don't even feel like they've really made it yet, you know. But right. like, it, based off of Robin and Simon's, um, you know, their their model for breaking in, like just getting the offer for work is is the break in. But it's like that's not that's not, that's just the beginning, you know. That's not even right. I feel I like they've know. already broken in. They've already just, broken in, and they should yeah. change the name of their podcast to Making It Bigger. Yeah, like uh, move, <laughs> moving to Hollywood. Uh, moving to Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, moving to Los Angeles. Yeah. All right. But, I don't know what we're trying to say with this. So I guess the point is, like, it's good to have dreams, but if you think the dream is the only measure of success, then you're going to be depressed and unhappy for your whole life. Right. So try to try to appreciate what you have, and I like what you're doing, Ulrich, with setting realistic goals for your next steps and. They sound doable and they sound like you can pull them off and you're going to feel so satisfied when you get funding for your movie and you're going to be in production and in 2018, you're going to be shooting it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's hope so. But I, I think so. I, I'm feeling <laughs> you're, Cause you're not banking on anyone else to, no. to make that dream come true. Like it's no. all in your control. Yeah. I just, it's up to part. me to, to raise the money. And if, if someone can fast track it for me somehow or get it, love them script and wants to make it happen sooner like more like hell yeah but i'm being i'm being realistic like i think in a year's time i can raise the money to make the movie you know um and whether it's the fifty thousand dollar movie or a two hundred fifty thousand dollar movie or a one million dollar movie one way or another like i'll get the budget together you know 
But yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> cool. Well, we ran out of time for the share corner. Let's just skip that and we're going to go out. All right. You have any last last words? No, just that I really love the conversation with Robin and, and I started listening to the podcast and I think everyone should listen to it because that's really cool. There you go. Check it out. The break-in. Yeah. With Robin Schmidt. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. And check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. You can also subscribe to the show notes. So every week on Monday morning, you will get an email with all the show notes, including a link to the MP3. So you can completely bypass iTunes and Stitcher and all that if you do not use those things. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, send us an email at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or you can find us at Twitter and Facebook with the handle at MMIH podcast. And if you like the show, please tell a friend, help us get the word out and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. All right. Well, another good conversation. Thanks, Ulrich. Thank you, Timothy. Yeah, it was a good one. I think we covered a lot of different stuff. Yeah, we packed a lot into this show. Yeah. Um, I hope you guys all enjoyed it and we'll talk to you guys next week.